Good morning. This morning I'm going to do something that I've, I really, I suppose I've never quite done it before. Um, we had a letter from some of our good friends and they went to a church that shall remain anonymous, uh, <laughs> but they went to the church uh, searching actually for a church where they could be fed grace of God and um, instead the pastor uh, preached and sought to convince the entire congregation that God hated them and um, used verses of scripture to do it. And I would normally simply answer that. Uh, they were asking me, <clears throat> how, how did I, uh, the, the scriptures that were given. And when I looked at what I was going to answer them, I thought, this is not just uh, one in a million. There are multiple thousands of people that have been taught that God hates them. And um, the only way that you could possibly get a smile on his face is that you get saved. Now, And that happened very recently in this area where we were talking about someone and the pastor said, well, thank God, now God can love them because they came to Jesus. Um, so I thought instead of sending my answer to that couple, I would use it this morning. And so, as I say, I've never done that before. Um, but I want to share with you this incredible, and I mean it is unbelievable, a way people use scripture. But we'll read it anyway. You might have read these scriptures and maybe wondered what's going on. Um, maybe not. But in Psalm number five, and this is only one, there's more than one of these. But Psalm number five and verse four. David said, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, which is a, a stronger word than hate, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. And it's, it's that word, obviously. He hates, he hates all that do iniquity and he abhors the bloodshed. And, um, you see, the, the problem is, um, we're looking at uh, psalms here that use a word that is a very strong word. I mean, let's get it out of the way. Let's say it, the word hate in English, Webster's Dictionary. It means to have an extreme dislike for someone. It means disdain. It means to exclude someone from your world. It means intense hostility. It means the attitude of an enemy. Um, yeah, that's what hate means. And, and now put that definition into that verse and you begin to say, is that the God that we worship? Is that the God who came to us in Jesus Christ? 
And the question has got to be answered, properly answered. It's not enough to say, I don't like that, so we won't read it. It's, it's there in the scripture. What does it mean? Well, just for starters, uh, we've got to understand who wrote this, where was he when he wrote it, what language did he speak, um, and I, I mean, and I've said this or hinted at it many times before, um, I'm English, and now I've been pretty baptized in Texas, but when, when I came over here in 1964, I got myself into trouble over and over again. I did, and serious trouble, because there are words that we use in England all the time, and over here, you would never use them. And um, it's the same word. Uh, Winston Churchill said that England and America are the only two countries that are separated by a common language. <laughs> and, and it's true. Well, I'll add to that, that in many, many languages, it's the same thing. Hebrew, the language that the Old Testament was written in, has such words that, for starters, when the Hebrews spoke it, they were black and white. Uh, we, we have a lot of gray area in our words, but the Hebrew, it was either you loved or you hated. And there's, just hold, hold it, you know, there's, there's a middle ground here. Um, yeah, and so when we translate, we've got to get inside a Hebrew mind because when they said hate, they didn't always mean hate as we mean hate. And when they said love, they did not always mean what God means by love. It's, you need that in the middle. Um, but it does tell me that we're speaking of extreme emotions here. And that might be interesting just to think about in passing. God has emotions. <clears throat> Some would deny that. But God has deep feelings. And when God became flesh and walked among us, it was constantly said he was moved with compassion. He wept over Jerusalem, wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Um, just hold that. That this is uh, what we're reading here. We're still in shock over this. But for all that, we are meeting a God who is uh, emotional, but really he's the emotion itself. He is not a passing thing. He is set in his emotions. Now, how do we understand this word then? If we get inside the Hebrew mind, let me say how it has been translated by people who know more Hebrew than I do. And, okay, just think about it. It means uh, less loved. I'm just telling you how it's been translated. Less loved. Uh, do you remember Leah, um, the, the sister of Rachel? Uh, Jacob loved Rachel, but one translation is Leah was less loved. So I, I just throw it out. There is a possible way of saying this. There is one way which I think is more correct, that it, it goes back to the original ancient Hebrew, and, and it means the I've been... Um, in a state of love, which, yeah, it begins in love. And loving, I have been rejected. And that rejection produces great pain. 
and hurt. So what do I do? So that translation is from the most original Hebrew. I set up a a wall. I mean, I'm not going to go there again. I don't want to be hurt again. I'll never be hurt again. So we just won't even talk. We won't go there. We'll put up a fence between us. We were in a house um, just a few days ago down in um, Houston, and um, there, there was this big fence between the neighbors, and uh, it sort of looked out of place because there was a plenty of areas with no fences, and then suddenly there was this big fence. And unashamedly, they said it was because they couldn't stand the sight of their neighbors. And so they put up a fence. They didn't have to look at them. They avoided them. That's one of the meanings of this word. It's, it's yes, I don't want to see them. You hurt me, and I will not be hurt again. So put up a fence. Separate. Turn the face away. We'll never talk again. Okay? That's how it has been translated. Um, and another one which is very much it's not as strong but I think maybe it comes closer to it I take no pleasure in this person I, I, I don't and we know the opposite uh, is said God takes delight uh, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased this word would suggest I'm not pleased okay so just Try that on for size or hold it in your head. Um, question is then, who, who wrote this psalm? We just read two or three verses. That's always a dangerous thing to do. I would not like to send you a letter and have you read the middle of it. Uh, we could get ourselves in trouble. Uh, so we do that all the time. We read, well, we get away with it because... We, we we do. But um, when it comes to something like this, that is so intense, I'd better know who, who said this and, and who was he talking about when he said that. Now, my friends who caused this uh, question to be asked, uh, they were told it's all mankind, all mankind. You see, we're the doers of iniquity. So God hates us. Well, that's not true. Read the psalm. It was very specific. It was written by David when he was hounded like an animal and chased all over Judea, hid in caves for a long time, while his father-in-law Saul, who was the king, was he only had one thing on his agenda. He forgot he was king. He was possessed with jealousy. Everybody loved David. Everybody sang David's praise. And Saul, the king, was sort of left out. And he'd got to get rid of David. He said, he's going to take my throne. And so he, the whole of the army was brought in. Everybody was brought in. Their, their loyalty to Saul was tested by how they treated David. And David was on the run as a wanted criminal. And he sits and sighs. There's a big cave in southern Judea called Adullam. And it's a honeycomb of caves. And David hid in there. <clears throat> Many of the Psalms. In fact, it would be good to kind of sound them out as to what it was like to be in a great cavern and to have your little guitar and, and be singing these Psalms and hear them echo around. Um, 
is in that place where David saying, you know, have you abandoned me? Uh, and you can know, abandon, 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 you know, the <laughs> echoing all around him, the emptiness, the feelings of rejection, the feelings, there's no way out of this. Where do we go from here? That's when he wrote this. He was not talking about all of mankind. He was talking, and it's very specific if you want to go back and read it. He was talking about those that had set their sights on him. He said, their bow is ready to kill me. They're out to get me, and I've done nothing wrong. They, they, now, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. That's not saying God hates all mankind. He is, in, in fact, he is saying this, that... Um, God does not take pleasure in these people. And that's true. I I mean, I I can't have a problem with that. Um, In fact, this is the foundation of David's hope. He he is saying that you're not a God who just sit back and see, look, they're having this uh, argument between them. He's a God really involved in my life. And he's involved in the lives of everybody around me. That's a simple, solid, foundational fact of the gospel, that that we're not here with a remote God who is just watching us, but he's a God who is so involved that he actually delights and he doesn't delight. He doesn't take pleasure in. He doesn't want to be with certain people. And he goes on and he says, you know, these evil people, They're not invited to your dinner table. God does not sit down with people to discuss how they can kill their enemies. Uh, Do you follow what he's saying? He said, these people are are pursuing me out of the hatred of their heart. And he says, "You, you, you you don't like those people. You don't like what they're doing. You don't want to be with them. And, and but you, you are filling my life with loving kindness and you invite me for dinner. That's the essence of, of what the Hebrew is saying there. It, it, it's what in the New Testament says that if God be for us, who can be against us? It's a very comforting fact, actually. We don't talk about it very much, but um, God is not on the side of evil men. You know, uh, God does not endorse acts of wickedness. That that God is set against those who would tear down his beloved, his beloved humans. Um, he doesn't take pleasure in these people. Um, so when I say God is love, it doesn't mean that he entertains evil and endorses murderers. You follow me? Um, so what, what's God going to do? He protected David. He, he, he didn't protect Saul, but he protected David. And David was on the run, as I said, but there were times when Saul was right there to be killed. Do you remember? And David goes out and confronts him and says, See, I didn't kill you. God is with me. He doesn't like what you're doing, but he and I forgive you. But David was given great wisdom, that being one of them. He was given the grace of forgiveness to keep going through without becoming bitter. And as he grew into what would become the King David, 
um, Saul diminished and withered away to nothing. Um, so yeah, God was with David, but he was not pleased. He didn't take pleasure in what Saul was doing. What about Joseph? Uh, was was Joseph his brothers? Did did God take pleasure in them? No, God actually sat down at the campfire with the brothers as they were planning the murder of Joseph. God sat with them and joined into their discussion and said, I'll take your plan and I'm going to twist it on its head. And at the end of it all, Joseph said, you meant it for evil and God took your meant, made it his meant and meant it for good. Uh, you get it? God, God's... We've got to be careful when we just simply say, well, God loves the world. He does. But the, the, the amazing thing is that God did love his brothers. God did love Saul and worked in their lives. And in fact, by the end of the story, the brothers have pretty much turned around. Um, it's the same with Paul in Second um, Corinthians 12 when he says these people coming into his life were like a thorn in the flesh. They were tearing apart everything he did and slandering his name. And so he prayed. He wants God's action. Take them away. Take them out. Be, be, get rid of these people. They're, they're upsetting me and they're destroying my ministry. And, and the Lord says, no, but i tell you what I will do. I'll clothe you with such a presence, such a grace that you'll rise above them and they won't be able to touch you, which is what he did, you see, you see. Um, at other times, in, in chapter 1 and 2 of that same epistle, he said that he was in this position where he was so persecuted, he said, I gave up. He said, I knew I was going to die. And he says, I, it was like being sucked down into a carcass. I, I was finished, I was done. And um, then he said, God, God's mercy came on my side. Yeah, God takes sides. And, and, he, came, and he gave mercy, or better, the, the, the whole covenant loving kindness. And Saul emerged and to the point where he wrote to the Corinthians and said, God so strengthened me, I'm now able to strengthen you with a strength I'd never had before. Uh, God delivered him. But he delivered from the wicked men. God was not pleased with them. He didn't take pleasure in them. So David came out of this because God was with him. And he came out of it with these psalms that he wrote. Songs of praise to God, of deliverance from these people. Paul came out of it all and wrote the New Testament. It, it, it's, you know... Uh, in his displeasure of evil, in his displeasure of those that plot and plan the destruction of others. Um, in the end, God turns the whole thing upside down. And it's a theme of the Old Testament that you might follow through. I'll give you one of them, Psalm 715. It says, speaking of an enemy of God, it says he has dug a pit and he hollowed it out. What for? So that David might fall into it. But what happened? He says, and he's fallen into the hole which he made. The, so here, 
I've got this great plan. We, we'll set this thing and David will walk on what looked like leaves and he'll crash into a deadly pit. And, and David says, no, he forgot and walked in the hole himself. And, and he says, his mischief will return upon his own head. His violence will descend upon his own head. Um, I, I don't know what this does to you, but I, for me... It gives me tremendous peace. It is the foundation of biblical patience. We live in a world, without getting political, but we live in a world where you and I could give a list of names of people that are just plain evil. They, they breathe evil. And their only desire is the destruction of that which has been given to us. And what do we do? In fact, one of the Psalms that's on this same line said, let's run to the hills. And David says, what are you, crazy? Um, God's address isn't in the hills, it's right here where I am. And we, we stand and recognize he is not taking pleasure in these people. He is not going to sustain them. He's not going to give them a solid platform to walk on. No, and that is... What about Proverbs 26? If a man digs a pit, um, again, in the sense of for somebody else to fall in, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, someone's going to, this is kind of ancient way of ambush, but you're going to roll a stone, it'll go down the hill and crush you. And he says, if you roll the stone, it will do a U-turn and come back and hit you. Uh, that's the way it works. It's our comfort. It's our self expectant hope is our boldness when we're being persecuted that you might appear to get away with this but your arm's too short to box with God you know you're not going to get away with this it's true so I take comfort that's the okay we just sort of turned over the ground on the top of the text but you see that it's not the end of the story these verses which were meant for comfort, to tell you God is with you. But they've been twisted in such a way to be used by religion to be against you. And there are literally millions of persons, I'll even say believers, who have taken such verses as this and made it a foundation for our rejection. They have been arrows of fear telling me that I'm rejected by God. Terrible, but to be told that you're hated by God, you're condemned, and he's avoiding you. I, I, we, we've talked even in this last week with people. I mean... <laughs> good people, and you get close to, to these very issues. I, I heard questions this very week from people that are on the edge of being afraid of God the Father because yeah. this is how they see him. They see God the Father in a position of hate, Jesus coming to try and change God's mind about you. And that, that's, that's blasphemy. But but it is pre presented as, as the gospel. There are believers 
And it is very possible that there are persons not only on Zoom, but when this goes on YouTube, that I'm speaking your language, that you go to bed. And we met people this week who go to bed and their question is, does God hate me? They don't, you know, and they're almost too afraid even to mouth the words, but they go to bed with this. It's it's the engine that drives those endless fear-driven altar calls that you've got to make sure you're right. I know you did this on Sunday, but what you might have done on Monday and Tuesday, God hates. So you've got to come and get saved again. And that's the church. That's the gospel again and again and again. Rededication. Let's make sure this time. And ask people, are you a Christian? I've tried many times, but it didn't work. And I'm still afraid. We had a letter just the other day that was three pages of trying to say that. This, 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 what we're looking at, is a terrifying weapon in the hands of the religious, demanding, look at yourself in the mirror, judge yourself as unworthy. And, of course, standing beside you is the accuser, Satan, who's whispering in your ear, this is you, this is you. But those scriptures contradict the entire Bible. They contradict the gospel. They're cancelled by the gospel. (laughs) To the point where having said everything I've just said, this father of ours never abandons our enemies. He makes sure he's protecting you, but don't think that he hates your enemies. Got to be very careful how you pray about your enemies because the Holy Spirit loves them and is working in their life. Can you imagine being someone that Saul of Tarsus persecuted? And when he persecuted, he did it with a devilish passion. If you were persecuted, you might even have lost a loved one. And you hear the news that Jesus met personally with Saul of Tarsus. And now he's turned around completely. Would you say hallelujah? (laughs) I wanted you to throw him into hell. You know, I, I... it's in you you mean he's now going to become your number one ambassador this is ridiculous yeah okay it's true he doesn't abandon it right there in isaiah is it isaiah 55 where he says my thoughts are not your thoughts my ways are not your ways And, of course, if you're raised in the same churches as I was, that just means that every time something happens you don't understand, they say, oh, well, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. It's nothing to do about that. You read the whole chapter again, not just one thing. The whole chapter is, it begins with, with come and buy food without money. Come, we've got all this to give to you, and it's all for free. And it's going to be given to everybody. You don't have to present your resume to get it. Uh, and you you look at, and you, yeah, my ways are not your ways. I, I love the most odd people. Um, I sit down and bless most unwanted people. I even sit down with your enemies. Because that's God. He is love, you see. 
Jesus is the word of the Father. Um, in that one word, Jesus is the word. In that one word is contained everything God is. Everything God thinks, everything God will do in one word. And that word is Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I said it in the Bible school a few days ago that it's like saying in one drop of the ocean is the, the entire ocean. He says, I'm the word. Yes. And to, to meet me, you don't need 10,000 volumes to explain God. Just meet me. And if you've seen me, you'll know the Father. Yes. The Father's contained in me. It's how God is. Jesus is the way God deals with sin. And be careful we don't find ourselves sitting in the Pharisee section uh, because that's how I discovered grace. I'm very serious. Um, it was the elder brother in the parable that led me to grace. Because when I read the parable of the prodigal son and then the elder brother and the tirade of the elder brother on the victim and so on, I was on the side of the elder brother. I thought he had a jolly good case. Um, he was, he was really, I mean, God, you haven't dealt with this guy as he should. He, he deserves much more. And then it dawned on my little teenage head that I was on the wrong side of Jesus here, that the parable was not saying he was right. He was wrong. Um, it, it's how God deals with, with human beings is, um, beyond our comprehension. So when I say that word hate doesn't exactly mean hate. No. But when I really come to the heart of God, even those gentler, softer definitions, he goes far beyond them. And, and I, I'm trying to sit in this position where I know that he doesn't take pleasure. He stands against all the ways and works of man in his selfishness. He protects his beloved. But on the other hand, his love is so infinitely beyond all our petty little definitions that he leaves us, as I'm getting to this point, quite speechless. Um, how, do, how do you say this? Because what I'm saying is, and it's something we do need to hear, is that even though he is love, he's not soft on sin. And that's what people hear sometimes when they hear us say God is love and he welcomes the tax collectors to his table. They say you're soft on sin. Uh, they can't understand the God who loves, can see through the rottenness and corruption wickedness of men's hearts and see the preciousness of this one that he came to find. Um, the, I tell you this, the gospel is the war cry of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit against sin and Satan. Um, and he's that for us. We speak of the wrath of God. It's not toward you. It's toward anything that Satan will ever spew out of his mouth to separate you from the Father's love. Do you, do you follow me? The, the, 
when it speaks in lurid language of that great and terrible day of the Lord, yes, that was the cross when God dealt with darkness and sin. He's not soft on sin to the point where he has given his own life to remove sin. God gave his life in order to bring us into that relationship which is ours from before time began. He is set against sin, but he is limitlessly for us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think we need it, but why not? Um, Genesis 3.15, at the very entrance of sin. Comet, I've written that chapter out. I've written it out as close to the original Hebrew as I know, trying to find what these people say. God's hatred was revealed against sin. It wasn't. The more I read the chapter, the more I see it's God's love was revealed. If God was this kind of God that we hear about, then he would have snuffed out that first couple. Miserable insects that just got in the way. We start all over again. Yeah, That would have made sense if if God hates us. But, But instead... As they stood before him and stood before him insolently. They they were not being nice. I mean, Adam responded to God, it's not my fault, it's her fault. That woman that you gave me, she... I mean, that's how the Bible begins. That's how... And yet, what did he say to these rebels? He said, I'll deal with this. I got it. He said, and this woman that you get so upset about... Um, she will be the one through the seed of the woman I will crush the head of the serpent why? because I love you the the wrath of God was against sin the serpent because he loved us Jesus who is God and that's something people have noticed they they think this God who hates well that's, that's God the father uh, and Jesus is sort of, we don't know, but he's nice. Uh, and no, you, you see, you don't understand the Trinity. The Trinity means that Father and Son and Holy Spirit equal God is love. Yes. When God says, I am, that is in the mouth of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't take one out and say that's different. Then you'd have broken the Trinity and you've X'd out your Christianity. Uh, This is the heart of the gospel, that God, Father, Son, co-equal, living God, one God, is love. And God came from God. And so when I meet Jesus, I meet with God, not a secondary being. Not there's God, and then there's Jesus. And there's the Holy Spirit having a party. Um, no, really, that's how people think. Um, no, I meet Jesus. I meet God. Yes. And he said, what are you doing here? He said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's what he's here for. Yes. And when he was in the act of doing it, if you remember in Luke 15... He said, or at least the, the Pharisees rose up to say, um, this, this man, they said, he receives sinners and eats with them. And, and it's the word receive. Now, it was bad enough he ate with them. That's another whole story. But receive, how can I, um, 
if if someone that is a dear friend, I mean someone that means everything to you, and they've in, accepted an invitation to come for dinner, and you can hardly wait to see them. You keep pacing and looking out of the window. Are they here yet? And when they do come, you you hug them. And that's the word in Greek, received. Jesus didn't say, well, it's time that I talk to you sinners. Uh, Jesus flung his arms around every one of them as they came to eat with him. And in good Middle Eastern fashion, probably kissed their faces and, and, and pulled out the chair, you know. Uh, that, that's, he not only eats with sinners, which was a covenant act, which said, I enter into a, a mini bond with you, a covenant friendship. And that was, but the, he receives them as if he really likes them. You know, it's, if a Pharisee ever had such a, you know, had, had people come for dinner, they wouldn't because they'd have to go and have a bath afterward to get rid of the contamination. That was a Pharisee. But if they did, it would be a very solemn, silent affair. We don't really want you here, but we're not excited about you being here. We just accepted the reality you had to be here, so let's eat. No, Jesus is portrayed as being absolutely nuts about these people. He's, he received sinners. He welcomed them as dear graduates. And then he wept over his worst enemies, you know, the Jerusalem people. They were about to crucify him, literally within hours. And he stood on the high hill outside of Jerusalem and looked at Jerusalem and wept. And it says in the Greek, with great convulsive sobs, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you, received you, that you wouldn't. And, you know, you've chosen your path. Because I suppose another way of saying hate in that more softer way would be to say we're not on the same page. I, I left that out. We're not, um, we're not walking the same road. And therefore we can't really get together. And that's what he was doing with Jerusalem. You've chosen a pathway that leads away from me. Sin in its essence is turning my back on the love of God. And and Jesus wept, not not because he has been insulted. You know, you hear it so many times. Sin is you, you having what is it? You, you've um, re, re, you won. Uh, that's the word. Uh, yeah, we, you've offended the the majesty of God, and therefore God's mad at you. No, that that's daft. Everything you read in the Scripture is that by turning your back on God, you've entered the path of self-destruction. And God in Christ wept over the people that had turned back on his love. And of course that will mean, because they turn their back on his love, they're going to crucify him. And he's weeping for them. No, he receives sinners. And as they crucify him, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Look, you know John 3.16, and, and I've said this many times before, but there's an equation there. 
For God so loved the world. The world, you know, all those who do iniquity. God so loved the world. So he loved them before anything was happening, before they were saved, before they became Christians, whatever you want to say. It happened before that. They're in the act of doing sin. In the act of it, talking sin, thinking sin, planning sin, doing it. God so loved the world. What does that look like? Well, so loved. Didn't even say loved. So loved. What's that look like? That. So X equals Y. God so loved that, this is what it looks like, he gave his only begotten son. That is the way father loved his son is the way he loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's the balance. This equals that. Or what about in in Romans 5? He died, the just, or the righteous, the beautiful one. He died, the just, for the unjust. Or again in Romans it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Do do you hear this? It isn't that God hated them and then they got saved and then God loves them. No. God's love is first. God's love is always first. We love him, said John, because he first loved us. And then in 1 John 2, he says he died for our sins. And then he says, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so when I look at it like that, God's love, even though I say again, he is not soft on sin and he doesn't endorse sin, but he does love us all in a way that's beyond comprehension. A love that will actually change, transform sinners. Go back to what I said. People say that that word hate means, which I think, I mean, I'm not retracting it now. Many of those ways of saying it, it would be correct. But we said agape, love, um, is less than. So God loves us, but to the drug addict wandering down the street, he would say, God loves you more. Do you follow me? He would look at you all and say, God loves you. He doesn't love me. Or if I could convince him of anything, he would say, God loves you, but he loves me less than. I hear that a lot. You know, you explain the gospel and they say, well, that, that's so, you know, you're you. God loves you. And if he loves me at all, it's not like that. Less than. Do you realize love, agape, is an attribute of God? Do you know what attribute means? And it's an old word and used mostly theologically. Attribute. Attribute is that which is essential 
for a person or a thing to be what it is. Okay, there there are many things that I could stop being or stop doing and I'd still be human. But there are other things, if I stopped that, I wouldn't be human. It's an attribute. God's love is an attribute of God. I, I say it like this. A ball is round. Round is the attribute of a ball. If it's not round, it's not a ball. You know, if you said, I've got a square ball, um, you need some, yeah. Um, nor can you have a ball that is more or less round. You know, you've got a ball that's more round than mine. No, you can't, you can't use those words. It's an attribute. It can't be more. Round is round. You certainly couldn't say mine is less round. Or is it kind of elliptical? It's No, you get the point. So God is love within the Holy Trinity. The Father loves the Son, the Spirit. That's love. God is love. Take away love, God isn't. The love, then, that the Father had toward Jesus when God came from God is the same. Love can't be different. It's an attribute. You follow me? And when he loves us, it's the same. God cannot love you less than he loved Jesus. He cannot. Because love is his attribute. God loves us. And that, that and the parable I referred to already, um, the, the elder brother, that was his great complaint, that love had been showed toward his younger brother, the one we call the prodigal, um, but you don't love me like that. Didn't exactly use the phrase, but he is saying... You love him, but anything you have toward me is less than that. You don't appreciate me. You don't see what I've done. I'm a victim of being overlooked. Well, that's impossible. The father loves the younger brother. And because of what the younger brother's condition is, he loves him in a certain expression. But he loves the older brother. And because the older brother is who he is, it comes out a bit different. But do you remember he says, talking to that elder brother, he says, all that I have is yours. He said the same to the younger brother. Now he says it to him. All that I have is yours. And that's when people get upset. He shouldn't have said it to the elder brother. Elder brother didn't deserve it. See, that's, that's the, the gospel. And that's the gospel that upsets a lot of people. Many believers could be quite happy if the father hated the elder brother. But no, he didn't. Not that he showed pleasure in the elder brother, but he joined the elder brother and he joined the younger brother in the shame that they had brought to the family. Am I talking too fast? Do you get what I'm saying? The younger brother brought the shame of having dragged his father's name through the mud. The elder brother had brought shame 
upon the father by, by publicly telling his father to get lost. And the father stood with the elder brother publicly and said, you are my son and all that I have is yours. He stood with the younger brother and he says, you are my son. And he put on his hand the, 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 the ring, which was the signet ring, keys of the whole family's fortune. Huh. It's, you, can't, you can't love at different levels. And therefore, when the wicked and the workers of iniquity and all that other list of them report that they are loved less, it is because they're in their darkness and they're blinded. In their ignorance, they've turned their back on love, so their experience of love is less than our experience of love. But it's not because God is one who says, well, you know, you're in class C. Um, such have no sense of the love that is active toward them. You, you, I, I have to assume you've you've met people that look at you as you would try to share the gospel, and, and they they look at you as having an in with God, that you know something with God, and God loves you in a way that's different to them. No, you haven't. Okay, but. They're out there. And it's also maybe more true, actually, of untaught believers. Untaught believers don't have a clue what we're talking about many times. And that's why Ephesians, written to believers, has opened the eyes of their understanding that they might know the hope to which they are called. Yes. You're in blindness, you're dark, you're, and you're thinking you are less loved. I remember in Brooklyn, whenever I was the pastor there, and it was back in the 60s, the hippies from the streets, I don't know you remember the guys, you know, flowers in their hair and no shoes on. And, and they came and in simplicity, they understood the gospel. And, and um, I baptized them. And I, I remember one of them, and he probably... A week ago was a drug dealer on the streets of Brooklyn. And, and here he was, he was kneeling, he was weeping, he was praising God, and he was having a meeting with God that no one could deny. And I, one of my elders, he was standing there, arms folded, looking angry at this ex-drug, whatever. And he said, oh... <laughs> I thought there's a place in the Bible for you, man. He said, all these years I have served God. All these years. And he said, I've never had an experience like that. And I was waiting for him to say, it's not fair, you know. Wow. I told him, I said, it's in Luke 15. You'll find, the, you'll find yourself there. It's, yeah, <laughs> the elder brother. We've got this idea. Um, he, he loves more. He loves, no, he doesn't. No. Um, it's just blind ignorance. And Andrew preached on it some weeks ago, that in 2 Peter 1, you know, where, where if you don't know these things, it, you've forgotten, you've forgotten. And, and it's true. Believers are blind, they've forgotten. Some never knew. And they think that anyone who can dare to say some of the things we say, they, they say that you, you know, it's... 
God loves you more. No, he doesn't. Um, or what about the other one? Uh, that you hurt me. You gave me great pain when I loved you. So I put up a fence to make sure I'll never get hurt again. Makes a lot of sense. Makes for some sort of peace. What did Jesus say again? He came to seek and to save the lost. Who were the lost? They were the workers of iniquity. That's the lost. They were the people living in their misery because of who they were. Living in the darkness. Those who had pained God's love. God had rejected, they, they had rejected God's love. He came to seek, seek, seek them. That's a strong word. Turn over every stone to find them. Yes. So much so that in that group of parables there, the seekers, the, the shepherd seeking, the woman seeking, the father seeking, they went into the place of the lost. Just a minute, where's the fence? Where's God saying, you hurt me, I won't give you a second chance? Where, where's God saying, you, you've done such abominable things, I'm going to damn you in hell forever? It's not there. It's a God who actually goes back and says, I want to get to the heart of this that you did. I want to see the why behind your rejecting us. So I'm throwing myself into your hands to do to me the worst you want to do. And in the middle of that, we'll look at each other face to face and know each other. That, that's the sufferings of Jesus. Why was Jesus' blood shed? That was the cost of his getting to know sin. He had to have his blood shed by his worst enemies so he could come and tell them face to face, eye to eye, I love you. Huh. God's love was rejected, but he comes to the very persons, to the heart of the place that gave him the pain and grief. He participated in the human feeling. Yeah, he doesn't build a wall of separation. We built a wall. Yes. My, we didn't want to hear about this love business. We wanted to be our own source. We wanted to be independent. And so he gave himself into the hands of sinners for them to do with him whatever they pleased, and that would be the key to their salvation. Yes. Come on, we've... They tortured him. But he is silent. We've been here before, so I won't stay long. But he was silent. And that, if you read the whole account of the sufferings of Jesus, the crucifixion, that's the one thing that is a constant. They said this. They hurled their rage, their accusations, their mockings. And he says, and he answered them never a word. Pilate going crazy. He said, I have power to release you. I have power to crucify. For goodness sake, man, talk to me. Jesus wouldn't talk. No. And when the only time he did, he opened his mouth, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. No. Well, what is actually happening there? The man's paining of God, all the rage of man against God 
God now is standing in front of them, says, give it to me. I'm not going to throw it back in your face. I'm not going to judge you for it. Give it to me. And in giving it to him, he received into his own body the pain, the agony of the sin of the world, which in Isaiah is called grief and sorrow. And of course, the the scripture, 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Just a minute. It's all one sentence. He is saying, reviled, he reviled not again. I want to say, why? When he was threatened, he didn't return a threat. Why? Because in so doing, he was bearing our sin in his own body. Does that make sense? If I curse you to your face and say the most abominable lies about you, it is a rightful, natural response to say, no, I didn't do that. And another kind of person would also add a few threats of your own and revilings of your own. It would be, I, what are you doing? You're saying that doesn't belong to me. You're, you're putting something on me that is untrue. When they did that to Jesus, he didn't say that. His silence actually said, I accept it. They said, crucify him, which in Hebrew means damn him to hell. Silent, didn't respond. Give it to me. You damn me to hell, damn me to hell. And all the mockings and everything, give it to me. So it says here, in his own body, it came, came through his ears, through, came into his body, the sin of mankind. And then he goes on at the end saying, by his wounds, that his sin wounded him. The bloody, broken skin ripped from his body was the physical side of what was happening. He was bearing sin, and that's what it did to him. The message, paraphrase, I like it. He never did one thing wrong, not once said anything amiss, but they called him every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so that we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were a lost sheep with no idea of who you were or where you were going. But now you're named and you're kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. That's, that's it. Jesus didn't come to change the Father's ideas about you. Please get it. Jesus is not here to convince the Father, who is very unwilling 
But Jesus tries to convince him he should love you. That is, and I use it, that is a damnable heresy. Filthy heresy. It was the Father who loved you and sent you Jesus to get you and bring you home. Came, in fact, then to change our mind about the Father. Right up to this very day where uh, there are believers who still can't trust the Father because of the lies Satan has told you. The human in the scripture is called the bride of Christ. That's the intimacy of this relationship that we're talking about. Well, what's, what's happening? The bride, us humans, lost her mind and fled from the beloved into the wilderness. Well, it's enough for the bridegroom to say that's enough. You hurt me once. Mm-hmm. No. He doesn't build a wall of forgetfulness to avoid further pain. Rather, he runs into the wilderness to get his bride and change her demented, crazy mind back to normality. Okay, just what what about that lost sheep? How could I talk about Luke 15 without doing the whole lot? Uh, The lost sheep, the first parable of that section You see, the reason I keep going back there, that is not a sweet little group of stories, you know. Mm -hmm. Dear little lamb, I found the lamb. It's sweet. Hang it on the refrigerator. Um, And then, you know, the prodigal was coming home, tie a yellow ribbon on the old oak tree. Now a little weep, you know, sympathetic. No, Luke 15 is a war cry. Yes, it is. It, the, the Pharisees, that's when they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is, he's disgusting. We can't talk to him. And the response is the war cry of God. I'll tell you what this is about. And those three parables, they are filled with, with gospel because it is slamming right into the rottenness and corruption of religion yes. in the mouths of the Pharisees. So what about the sheep? Okay, let's try and pull all this together. The shepherd did not endorse what the sheep had done. Please understand that. We're not saying, well, the shepherd said, you know, I'll just go and get the sheep. No, he called it a lost sheep. And he said, it's my sheep. That is, it has been lost and I'm the one that got hurt. A lost, a valuable sheep. So he do, he's not he's not smoothing over this and saying, "Well, you know how sheep are." Um, nor, nor does he say, "I'll take a stroll, see if I can find the animal." Um, no, he doesn't endorse the sheep's action. He doesn't make excuses for the sheep, but rather he plunges into the same wilderness and lostness that the sheep is in. So he's not going to build a wall and say, the stupid animal can die, I'm sick of it, going out there to find the sheep, risking my life, this is, that's for the birds. Let the die, you know, put up a wall, I don't want to talk to that sheep again. 
Instead, he bears himself to the same dangers, the same privations, the same hunger and thirst the sheep is now in. He goes where the sheep is. And I've been into that wilderness in Israel where the sheep and the shepherds were. And um, I was very glad to get out of it. Uh, it's, it's a frightening place. It's a dangerous place. And in those days there were creatures, that predators, that would come for man and beast. And Jesus described the shepherd as going to actually participate with the sheep, all of the horrors of the wilderness. He would join and stand where the sheep stood in its lostness. He knew the way out. Sheep didn't. Sheep's in there. And probably, of course, with the sheep, it didn't even know it was lost. Thought it... Green grass in the middle of a rocky place of death. They thought that was, you know, best they could get. He knew the sheep's real position. He knew the way out. And he had already determined not to come out without it. This is so important. It says... Before going into the wilderness, he says that I will seek my sheep until I find it. That was a commitment that he, you'll never see me again unless I have a sheep with me. I'm not, I'm not going to have a go. I'm not just going to try. Even if I bring back the carcass of the sheep, if I get there too late, well, I'll bring back the carcass to show I found the sheep. I say, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, he hates what the sheep has done. Placed itself in that kind of danger. But his attitude was, I will not allow the sheep to remain in this state. This is not the end of the story. I'm going in. And I'm not coming out without the sheep. And so the judgment, you could say, the judgment upon the sheep is, is in the wilderness. Do I have to add to that judgment? And I, I, I don't agree with that. I don't endorse it. You're wrong, sheep. The, the presence of the shepherd inside that wilderness what was the announcement, this sheep has done something very stupid. This sheep has broken every rule of sheepfolds. And it is abandoned itself to the death of the wilderness. Oh, he, the very presence that a shepherd had to come after it judges the action of the sheep. It's wrong. But the shepherd doesn't go there to judge the sheep. He goes there to rescue the sheep, yes. bring the sheep home. It's not the end of the story. He won't come out until he's found it. Or you could put it this way, the shepherd gave up his right to return without the sheep. Shepherd's a free man. He can do anything he wants. But he voluntarily gave up his right to return home without the sheep. He said, I can't do that. You'll never see me again. And when he did find the sheep, before he even got home, 
found the sheep and he says to me, he rejoiced. I found my sheep. He's still in the middle of all hell breaking loose around them, but he's rejoicing. So what does all this do to us? I don't even know if I've done an adequate job on this, but the first thing, how does it affect me? In the middle of a world gone crazy with the workers of iniquity, I can relax. We're surrounded by wicked men that God is not endorsing them. He takes no pleasure in them. He might not do it the way I want him to do it, but I do know that we're not in an empty universe on our own hoping that righteousness wins. We've God himself stands with us and tells us, I'm not pleased with this. That, that to me, maybe we don't say it enough. It's um, the comfort that I get from a God who enters our feelings and can say the words of displeasure. But this has that much longer effect. There is no torment in love. 1 John chapter 4. No torment. And the word torment, there is a very specific word in the Greek. It is a raised fist that is about to punch you in the face. And it says there is no fear. No fear of a beating. No fear of abuse. There's no fear that someone is going to punch you in the face. Perfect love casts out all fear. To the point where we stand on equal ground with the Holy Trinity. And it says that as he is, so are we in this world. So love has destroyed that other religious question you ask standing before the mirror, have I done enough? Uh, I don't think you have. You say, but I read my Bible and pray every day. How long, 15 minutes? Good grief. Is that enough? With a God who loves? Is that enough? Well, I, I could do it for two hours. Two hours? Are you serious? Is that enough? 24 hours? No, is that enough? I'm serious. You put enough in there and let it hurt you. Put enough in there, let it destroy you. And you'll realize the absolute emptiness and stupidity of all the laws of religion. No, there's no enough. No enough. The only enough is the words of Jesus. It's finished. It's enough. He came and got us out. Question, is God still mad at me? Well, he never was. But, see, that all those questions like that, that we've been raised in religion to ask, yes, yes. They, they block us from plunging into the ocean of God's love and just reveling in God without a thought of all those questions. And it radically changes how we look at the lost. Which is, yeah, I'm not saying it's all, well, the word lost, you know, as we've seen many times, it it means, at least it's prime meaning lost. I've lost something valuable, precious, and and it demands we go searching for it. I I can't live without this. That's lost. 
But of course, also lost means the person is in great danger. They, they wouldn't be lost if it wasn't in great danger. Um, so it's that we're looking, a person has gone missing from where they belong. They're in grave danger, but they are precious. They're beautiful, and I can't, I can't stop looking till I find it. That's lost. Well, we look at the same way. We, we know that what you're doing is just plain stupidity. You're, you're in the dark. You don't know who you are. You don't know why you are. You don't know where you're going. You're ignorant. You're saying things that you'd never say if you had a clue who you are. You're lost. You're in the darkness. You're blind. You're making up truth, which is not truth. And we can learn, and I, this doesn't happen overnight, but we can learn to see such as Jesus sees them. We can look at them through the eyes of the shepherd. And we, that, that's what I mean. And I've heard, well, I won't go into it, but I, I've heard prayer meetings a lot. I said I've heard. I, I couldn't join in. But, you know, you would, ex, you would think to listen that God is all political, that he's, you know, completely enmeshed in seeing life as we see it. And... um but well, he's not, to the point where he shocks us sometimes. And suddenly we realize there's stuff inside of us that's, you know, we, when we say God loves the wrong people and he saves, you know, you shouldn't have saved them. My, my. Yeah, my, my. Um, but no. And if you notice this, if you believe, this is another subject really, but if you believe that God hates those who committed uh, do iniquity. If you believe that, notice how it has changed you to hate them too. As if, well, God hates them, that gives me permission to hate them. I hear more hate from the lips of evangelical Christians than I do hear love. Um, think about it. Try and put this whole thing together. Think about it. Which I think we are the ones who need metanoia. Yes. We need that blaze of light yes. Yes. to radically transform our thinking, not only of ourselves in relation to God, and we need metanoia to see who God is, love, but at the same time metanoia to see who my neighbors are, to see our love. There it is. And... Um, Let's see what the Holy Spirit will do with that. Yes. Father, we give you thanks for these vast truths that we have talked about. And all that we can ask is, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our understanding. Sometimes we feel we're so dumb and stupid. Open our eyes to see the Father in Christ Jesus' eyes. Open our eyes to see ourselves as you see us. Open our eyes to see the world as you see that world. Into your hands we commend ourselves now, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. And amen.